want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever seen something that has left you amazed at the sight that you beheld or observed? A couple instances that stand out for me. Number one is my wedding day. Uh, almost three years ago now, got married to, to my wife, Mary, and to see her in um, her, her dress and everything and regaled for our, our wedding ceremony was amazing and just kind of left me in awe. But when we went on our honeymoon, we, we went to Estes Park, Colorado. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to be out in Colorado. It's really beautiful. A lot of fun. Estes Park is, is this little t- touristy town settled in um, the hills of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and beautiful town, about five, 6,000 people, probably about the size of International Falls, maybe a little bit larger. And it's just a beautiful place, and there's so many resorts that are around. I was able to find a good deal on one, so uh, December is not the time to go up in that for vacation because it gets really cold and snowy, but uh, found a good deal. We're, we were up there for 10 days. It was just amazing. Just, just the whole area made you uh, stand in awe of God and his creation. You, the cabin we had, the resort... The, that we had, uh, had a, a view of the mountains. Um, Estes Park is also right at the entrance, one of the entrances to Rocky Mountain National Forest. And so it's, it's amazing there. There's elk, there's pine trees, there's snow-capped mountains every morning that you wake up. And every morning that we got up and went out and did things in that area, the first sight we had was that snow-capped mountain. And was an amazing, beautiful sight. We had a chance to go into the park and to uh, see different sites. There's a whole valley that you can just, different sites along where you can just stand back and see the, the whole national forest in front of you. It's quite amazing to, to behold and leaves you breathless as you consider the beauty that's in front of you. So if you have a chance to go, you need to go. Well, just like that scenery made my wife and I just stand amazed at the site and what we were looking at, this passage that we have before us this morning prompts the same response from us as believers. Not looking at scenery, per se, and standing in awe of that, but looking at God and what he's done. And my my challenge for you this morning, it's a challenge I'll repeat next week. I'm not necessarily going to give you a new challenge, but I want this challenge, this proposition, if you will, to remain with you over the next couple weeks. My challenge to you this morning is that we must stand in awe of our God who saves. You and I this morning, we must stand in awe of our God who saves. Why do we need to do that? Why do we need to stand in awe of God? We've, we've talked about praising Him before and rejoicing in Him. But why, why, Pastor, do we need to stand in awe? May, may I suggest to you from this passage of Scripture that there are three truths that should prompt us to stand in awe of the God who saves. The first truth from verse 4 is that he pours out his love and mercy. Notice verse 4 with me, if you will. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. There's a contrast here that's going on, as you can see. And it's designed with that little contrasting conjunction but to show uh, a, a new side of the discussion that we've been having. Remember last week we talked about verses 1 through 3 about how we were lost in our condition, no hope. We couldn't save ourselves. We were, de- we were spiritually dead. 
we're rebels and, and so on and so forth, and nature, by nature children of wrath. A very bleak picture. But verse 4 gives us a little hope. And not just a little hope, a great hope, but God. And I could, I could stop and preach a message all on that, those two little words all morning. But that little conjunctional phrase shows a transition from who we were to what God did. But God. Now it could have, it could have just stopped there, but it goes on to explain. But do you remember another passage of Scripture that kind of has this little phrase in it to indicate something that God did? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. So all that Paul is doing here is he's drawing our attention to what God did. And the amazing thing here is not that God did something, but the very fact that he did something is incredible. You know, the, the ver- verses 1 through 3 just, again, point a bleak picture. It points to no hope, lifelessness, just this, this continual downward spiral. But God. God did something. We, we, we had no life. We had no opportunity to respond to him. We couldn't make ourselves be in a relationship with him, yet God of his own free will made the commitment to offer a way of escape from the sentence of death. It was all him. Paul describes this a little bit further in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. It was all God. God did not have to save you and I. God would have been right and just in leaving us in our sins. He would have been right and just to leave us in our our dead condition, bound with no hope. But he made a way. For you and I to be alive. And brothers and sisters, this morning, our salvation is all about God. It's not about you and I, it's not about what I can do for God. It's about what God has done for me, and that's period, end of report. God initiated salvation. And the way I describe it here a little bit is. As God shows us our condition, who we were without him, but he steps in. It kind of reminds me of, well, actually, we'll get, we'll get to that next. I'm jumping in my head of myself. But God, who is rich in mercy. So secondly, as he pours out his love and mercy, he coveted the opportunity to be merciful. The, the idea of who is shows that God is not deficient in mercy. He continually has it because it is who he is. God is merciful. God is loving. God is the very definition of mercy. And notice that it's just not mercy in general. I mean, yes, it is the characteristic of mercy. But notice how much mercy God has. He is rich in it. And we've seen it before. We've seen it going back 
to verse 7 of chapter 1, the riches of his grace. It's, it's a different word here in verse 4, but the same emphasis. You know, wealthy, abundant, not lacking. And I believe the word highlights the ability of God to not only show mercy, but to show it without reservation. God is not a miser who holds on to his wealth, but a philanthropist who dishes it out in clusters. The picture might be uh, there are many charitable organizations that run events. And um, one of them is the the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Jerry Lewis, famous comedian, used to be associated with that for many years. And they would have these telethons, right? And, and what, what would happen, and I don't know if they still, they probably still do it today. I don't see it too much. <clears throat> but what they do, what they did back then anyway, was bring about celebrities and everything to talk about this condition and to urge people to give money. And they themselves would give to that cause. And you had a lot of wealthy people involved and, and Obviously, some people who were not wealthy still gave to it, and, and um, they poured their money into it. So at the end of the telethon, or perhaps sometime during the break, they would give an update on how much money they've raised. And you could see the amount that was up there in the millions of dollars, and just amazing how much people gave to that situation and, and other causes as well, and, and just poured out in a, in a willful uh, giving so that people could address that, that need. Well, if you will, God is the philanthropist who comes on the screen and and begins to give. But the problem is, well, not the problem, the good thing is he doesn't stop giving. Those people who appear on the screen and the the shows giving towards specific causes, they have to stop eventually, right? Because other than that, they're going to run out. (laughs) But God never runs out. God never runs out of his mercy to you and to me. And amen, we need it, don't we? We need God to be merciful, and we serve a God who does not run out of mercy. If you read the book of Lamentations, you will find a bleak picture. Jeremiah points a very serious condition towards sin, how, how God judges sin with righteous anger, how he is, how he is, sin brings devastating consequences. And you'll get depressed when you read the book of Lamentations, let me tell you. But in the middle of the book, Jeremiah pauses from his dialogue of destruction and devastation and he says these words, which we are all familiar with. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the midst of trial, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of sin, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of chaos, God is still merciful. God is still faithful. And he is rich in mercy. The word mercy here refers to compassion and kindness that God shows to sinners in need. And he is not deficient in it. When we are in, uh, uh, as we are needy people, God 
desires the opportunity to be merciful to you and to me. And by way of a minor point of application, brothers and sisters, this morning, are you running to God for mercy? Do you realize that your God, the God that you worship, is merciful? Do you every morning seek his face and plead with him for mercy, trusting that he will give it? He loves to give it. He's rich in it. He doesn't run out. So don't be afraid to ask God for mercy. Don't be afraid to ask God to be compassionate and kind to you. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. He loves to give it out. Thirdly, God was motivated by love. With, by, the, by the great love, because of his great love with which he loved us. I kind of illustrate it this way. Uh, recently, a couple weeks ago, <clears throat> well, about three or four weeks ago now, I uh, happened to go online and I sent some flowers to my wife. And uh, I love doing that. love giving her uh, little gifts like that just to, to show her that she means something to me. And I love her. My family likes to tease me that I was lucky to get her, and they're right. Uh, I, I am very blessed. And uh, they, they like to constantly remind me of that, and it's true. But why do I do that? Uh, actually, those flowers are still alive. It's, th- you know, it's almost four weeks later. They're still cooking. Pro Flowers is great. I recommend it highly. To any of you gentlemen who want to send flowers, use Pro Flowers. They last a long time. Okay. Why did I do that? I didn't do that because I had to. Okay. I didn't do that because, well, I need to kind of keep up a standard. No, I did that because I love my wife. And I'm grateful for her, and I'm, and I'm so thankful that uh, we, almost three years ago, uh, covenanted together in marriage. And so I, my, those flowers are an expression of my love for her, and they are motivated by my love for her. Well, that's the same picture here. The motivation that God had in saving us and making us alive, as we will talk about here in the next verse, is by love. And no, it's not just love, it's a great love. The, the magnitude is emphasized by using that word. It's large in its demonstration. It's not just sample portions of God's love. It's great love. It's, it's showering love. Love that is overwhelming. The love itself is this, this self-sacrificial expression of putting the se- interests and desires and needs of others before oneself. God so loved the world so much that he willingly sacrificed his son so that mankind could be saved. He put his own desires, interests aside, sacrificing even his own son for our salvation, John 3.16. And the verb form of the word uh, with which he loved us points to that past action, points to the action of the cross and, and what Christ did in, in expressing God's love for us on the cross. And it must be noted that this is the ultimate expression of love, and that is all that God needs to show. There, there, there are many people today who ask the question, well, if God loved me, or make the statement, if God loved me, he would do this. Or if God loved me, he would rescue me from this situation. If God, God is a God of love, why doesn't he do this? And our response should be not a, 
a defense of God, not an excuse for why God doesn't do something in a person's life, might challenge us that when people ask these questions, why doesn't God do this? How do I know that God loves me? Our response should be, look at the cross. That is God's ultimate description of love. He doesn't need to show anything else. So even in our own lives, when we're tempted to question God, God, don't you love me? God, why, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Don't you love me? We can look at the cross and, and see God's response. Yes, I loved you so much, I sent my son to die for you. And that is my ultimate expression of love. Look at the cross. And notice who this love is to. You've got to love what Paul does repeatedly in these first couple chapters that, he, that we've seen so far, with which because of his great love with which he loved us. You and me. We are the recipients of that. You could even put your own name in there. With which the great love he loved David. With which the great love he loved Terry, Kathy, Anthony, Les, Joanne, and on and on I could go. With which the great love he showed you. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 6 say this, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. For while we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. God loved you and I so much. Motivated by love, he went to a cross to die so that we might be made alive. So a point of application, another one here, kind of main one to emphasize here. He's poured out his love and mercy. Are you and I showing the same love and mercy to others that God has showed us? Are you in your Christian walk with the Lord? And, and if there's never been a time in your life where you confessed that you were a sinner, no, no way you get we're getting to God apart from Jesus Christ. You received his free gift of salvation. There's not been a time in your life I would love to talk to you about that. But if you have confessed him and, and repented and, and trusted him for salvation, are you showing that same love and mercy to others that God has showed you? And I must be, be honest with myself, I honestly don't like I should. I need to love my wife. I need to love others. I need to be merciful to others. Why? Because God has been merciful to me. And I know I can never ascend to that level of love and mercy, but that does not negate my responsibility to show it. Perhaps there's somebody in your life, a, a relative, a friend, a coworker, who is really hard to love, really hard to show mercy to you, really hard to get along with. And it's, a, it's a challenge for you. But can I, can, I, can I challenge you from this brief statement in verse 4 that even though that person's hard to get along with, hard to love, hard to show mercy, never stop attempting to do that. It doesn't have to be reciprocated. I know it's hard. I've been there. You've shown mercy, you've shown love, and the person doesn't show it back. I know it's hard. 
but still keep at it. Keep going. Keep showing love and mercy to, to, to those people. Why? Because when we were not responding to God, God showed love and mercy to us, pouring that out on our lives. So the first truth I want us to see is that God loves to shower his love and mercy on people. Think about that this morning as, as we go in a little bit here. Just think about how God just loves to pour out his mercy and love to you. A second truth that must make us stand in awe of, good, uh, of God is that he makes dead people alive. Verse 5, first part of verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He makes dead people alive. Again, Paul uses this, this little phrase, even when we were dead in trespasses, to remind us that it is impossible for the spiritually dead to independently become spiritually alive. There's just no way that a dead person can become alive, especially one who is dead spiritually. It's a reminder of the conditions that God had to overcome to make spiritually dead people alive. Again, we'll use the illustration of a funeral. As much as you and I would love that person to come out of their casket and start getting up and talking to, to us and interacting with us, there's no way that's going to happen. You, just, you and I cannot physically make that happen. And that was the condition we were in before Christ. But it wasn't something that we weren't responsible for. I think the, the word, use of the word trespasses, Paul again points to our responsibility. This condition of deadness was because of our deliberate violation of God's holy and moral standards. It's our fault that we're dead. It's our sin that causes us to be dead to God and not alive to him. So just it's impossible for spiritually dead people to become spiritually alive. And Paul reminds us of that, and I hope we're reminded of that this morning. But yet, even though it was impossible for God, all things are possible, amen? God made us alive. So dead sinners are alive with Christ. The word alive here, as, again, as you would assume, make alive, uh, it's, a, it's a unique word that Paul uses twice. It means to make alive together with someone. Paul uses this twice. And, and the reference here is to uh, back to being made spiritually alive. Being spiritually alive. Not physically alive, but spiritually alive. And notice who this is done with. Together with Christ. The act of being alive with Christ has shown that it cannot be done without Christ. So yes, God made us alive, but he made us alive with Christ. He made us alive with him. We are identified in, with his resurrection. You know, when Christ rose from the dead, he made it possible for, for spiritually dead people to become spiritually alive. And that identification will continue until the day of our physical resurrection when we are resurrected to a body like his. I can explain it really, really briefly by... By going back to Romans chapter 6, Paul, or, or Bob read it this morning. But Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 3, let me read verses uh, three, th 3 and 4. 
But you do not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, identification. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. We are united with him in his resurrection, and that enables us to be alive. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ, as Paul points out in Romans. And here he points out that by our unification with Christ in his resurrection, we are made spiritually alive to God. But it's together with Christ. It cannot be done apart from him. That's why it flies in the face today of many people who are attending services, even this morning, right now. There are many believers who are attending services who are trying to be alive without Christ. They're hoping to be made spiritually alive by their good works, by their church attendance, by their Bible reading, by their singing of the worship songs, by their participation in some ministry. They're hoping to be made alive. They're hoping to experience spiritual life. But Paul says that's not possible without Christ. In Christ is found spiritual life and nowhere else. And that flies in the face of many of the religions today that say there are many ways to God. There are many ways to get to Him. I I look at that verse and say, no, there's one way. You can't do it without Christ. You cannot be made alive and be able to relate to God apart from Christ. He alone is the way to be accessed to the Father. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And that leads me to say this by point of application this morning. Do you see how vital Christ is to your spiritual life? You cannot be spiritually alive apart from Him. You need Christ to be able to walk not just in salvation, at the point of salvation, but every day afterward. You know, I, as your pastor and, and your brothers and sisters, we can encourage and challenge you in your walk with Christ, but in reality, we cannot do it. Why? Because you need Him. Do you hold on to Christ as your spiritual life? Or are you trying to do it without Him? Because guess what? Without Him, you will fail. If you need Christ to be made alive to God, you needed Him back then in salvation to be made alive. God, you need him now to continue to live as he wants you to live. And are you doing that in your life? Are you holding on to Christ? Not just in the, in the, the bad times when things are going poorly for you, not just when health is, is questionable, when there's struggles with your finances, when there's relational trouble, but do you hold on to him in the good times? When things are going well, when, when the bank account is growing, when the relational issues have seemed to resolve themselves, when the physical hurt isn't there anymore. Are you holding on to Christ because He is your life? So we've seen this morning that standing in awe of God requires us to, to look at these truths the first truth was, is that God does pour out His love and mercy. He showers it on us. He, he loves to be merciful. He makes dead people alive. 
people who have no opportunity to respond to him, through Christ he makes them alive. And then finally, the third truth I want us to see this morning is that he saves by grace. For by grace you have been saved. It's in this parentheses. Paul puts it here for a reason. He wants to draw our attention to the fact that grace is on display in salvation. Again, that grace is that undeserved favor, God's undeserved favor that provides salvation. That, that's all that's in play here. He doesn't talk about his love. He doesn't talk about his holiness. Yes, he's, he's talking about mercy and love in the first, in first uh, four. But he wants us to realize how vital grace is to our salvation. And it seems that Paul adds this phrase to remind us that salvation is all of grace. He can't, Paul can't get enough of grace, so he has to just take this little parenthesis, add it in to what he's talking about, because he's just enraptured by grace. He'll talk about it in verses 8 and 9, but, but he just he can't, can't wait to get there, so he talks about it here. By grace you have been saved. It is this grace that Paul cannot get enough of. And neither should you and I. And I, Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Think of your favorite food. Think of your favorite meal. Something you can't get enough of. Something that if, if you had the choice, you would have every day of the week. Or maybe you'd have it three or four times a day. Even though it wasn't healthy for you. You still want it. Okay? So ignore the health. Yeah, just ignore that. Okay? <laughs> Think of something you really want, desire, you can't get enough of. And when you can't get enough of, what do you do? You, 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 you make every effort towards including that into your life. Well, that's what Paul does with grace. Paul cannot get enough of grace. He just mentions it over and over and over again. And it should be the same way for you and I. We should always be talking about God's grace to us. Not just in salvation, but overall. God's grace to us in protecting us and, and, and going from place to place. God's grace in our workplaces we're working. Just, just busy with fries and hamburgers at Hardee's or working in an office. We should be talking about God's grace and showing how God has been gracious to us. Overwhelmed so much that we, just, we, we cannot help but mention it in our daily conversations. Which leads me to say, are you doing that in your life? As you go about your lives, whether you're working, whether you're retired, whether you're just you're going to the doctor's office, whether you're um, helping out a friend, are, are you continually adding God's grace into your conversation? Being thankful for it, but also testifying of it. Because God, God, is, God has so been gracious to us that we, should not, we cannot help ourselves but mention his grace. People sing about it, right? Amazing grace. Everybody knows amazing grace. But not everybody's experienced it. And we have the opportunity to share that with others. And lastly, under this, this point, I want us to see that salvation is from him. That phrase, have, you have been saved, points to God's saving act whereby he saves the believer from wrath and sin's punishment of death. It's, it's not God saving from another person's wrath, 
You know, that would be different. Deliverance in that respect is delivering from something else, some other outside force. But here the salvation, it refers to God saving people from his own wrath, from his own punishment. And if that doesn't speak grace, I don't know what does. We've seen that God deserves to punish us to an eternal hell, but yet he chooses to save us from that righteous, just punishment to provide eternal salvation. The, the way this sentence is structured highlights several things I want us to see. Number one, it highlights that this is a past action that has present-day results. So by grace you have been saved. Another way of saying it, by grace you are being saved. So I, I think the emphasis here is on salvation in the past, but that's the effects of salvation are still present. It's not you got saved and then you lost your salvation and you came back to it. No, you have been saved and you are continuing to be saved. There's that continual emphasis there, which again flies in the face of a lot of people who say that you can lose your salvation. But if I read the passage right here, read this small little parentheses, Paul says, once saved, always saved. You have been saved, you will continue to be saved. You don't lose it. It also speaks to me, this sentence speaks the fact that the origin of salvation is in God and not us. You have been saved. It points to an outside force coming and saving. And in this case, it's God. Which again flies in the face of the teaching that's out there in many churches that you can work your way to God. You can earn your salvation. No, you can't. God is the only one who saves. God saves by his own effort, not ours. The sentence also focuses on the result of salvation. And the result of salvation continues through eternity. You have been saved, you are being saved, and that will never stop into eternity. Salvation does not end. Which leads me to say, aren't you thankful you can't lose your salvation? <laughs> I would lose mine in a minute. Seriously. We all would. But God saved you and I, and that will never stop. And then this sentence also conveys the future promise of delivery from the presence of sin. So there's the present emphasis. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. All of that's right here. And again, as I've said, I'm looking forward to being saved from the presence of sin. I don't know about you. Because I don't like what my sin does. I don't like what my sin compels me to become. But praise God, there's a day coming where I'll be saved from all of that. That sin will be put to death permanently. And notice again who this is to. For you have been saved. It's plural here, all believers. So regardless of when you got saved, regardless of when so-and-so got saved and other people that you know, no one who comes by faith is left out. I mean, Paul just, in this one pronoun, shows that faith, grace by faith alone, is the way to get to salvation, a way to get to God, and if you choose that option, you will not be left out. It's this faith in God that allows us to be saved. 
It's not a hope so or a wish so or a think so. It's a confident assurance that God has saved you because you've placed your faith in him. God doesn't leave anybody out. You come by faith. God does not leave you out. There, there, there are many churches and organizations today who say that God only accepts a few. And you could be one of the ones that, to get in. But, but when I read this small portion of verse 5, chapter 2, I read that no one who comes by faith is left out. That leads me to ask this question before I get to our main point of application. Have you come to faith in Christ? Has there been a time, again, as if you pleaded with God for forgiveness, he's granted you salvation, have you come to him? And if you have, are you thankful that he doesn't leave you out in the cold? He doesn't say, no, no, you can't come in, we're full up. He doesn't leave anyone out who comes to faith. And truly, is the salvation of our God is amazing. So my question is, as we talk about this point, he saves by grace. Are you gracious to others as God has been gracious to you? Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, kind of not talking about grace, but talking about forgiveness and, and such. Notice it says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And Paul here is talking about forgiveness. We'll get to that when we get closer to this passage of Scripture. But I want us to draw us back here. Are you willing to offer grace to others just as God was willing to offer grace to you? Yes, I know people are stubborn. People are hard to get along with. People can be nasty. And there tends to be, and I know in my own heart, there tends to be this, this rising up of, oh, I've got to defend myself. I've got to get in there and throw some punches. But if God exercised great grace to me who wanted to throw some punches, can I not exercise grace to others who are just as needy as I am of God? And maybe it's your own fellow brother or sister in Christ. Because let's be honest with ourselves, we can be some of the meanest people to each other. We've all heard the stories. Churches ripped apart by this believer sitting over here, being bitter against this believer over here, and just punching each other. But be gracious. Are you being gracious to others just as God was gracious to you, regardless of whether they believe or not? God was gracious to you and I. We were lost. And we need to be gracious to others. You know, there are many things today that leave us in awe and wonder. You know, it could be the scenery we see, it could be the, the house that we live in, it could be the, the, the different activities we engage in. Yet nothing is more powerful than the God who saves he pours out his love and mercy. He makes dead people alive. He saves by grace. And as we face the rest of our lives this week, may we never lose the wonder, our wonder, of our great God who saves.